morning, church. Good to see everybody. Hope you feel fat and happy this morning, post-Thanksgiving. That didn't get the laughs I thought it might. That's, uh, that's my, um, my experience over Thanksgiving anyway, fat and happy. God with us, Emmanuel, one of the, the names of God. It's uh, a song we just sang is a beautiful song full of the truths of Scripture. You are here. You are holy. We are standing in your glory, we sang. Powerful lyrics. The truth of which Jesus uh, taught us. He said, where two or three are gather in my name, there I am with them. God with us is the title of the song we just sang. Yet, we must admit that we're not with God in the way that we will one day be with him. It's true that all those trusting in Jesus for salvation receive the Holy Spirit. This is true. The third person of the Trinity comes, dwells with us as we trust in his Son, follow after his Son. And we're told the Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. Once God's with us, we're kept by the Spirit, we're full of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul described the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit uh, like that of a deposit, something you might uh, give a deposit for, guaranteeing that you're going to purchase it, purchase whatever that is. Uh, the Spirit's given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our redemption. God with us physically this morning. The real presence of God here among us in a life-changing way so that we experience His power. Now, this morning, yet we must admit that we don't fully experience God in the way that we'll one day experience him. The fullness of redemption has yet to be experienced, which is, it's actually good news. <laughs> it means that for those trusting in Christ, the days, the best days are always ahead for them. Those trusting in Christ, no matter what they're going through this morning, what you brought here to worship with you, the burdens, the worries, the anxieties, the things you dread may come right around the corner. Whatever that might be, God's people have been given the presence of God to sustain them, care for them. His grace is sufficient for us, Paul wrote. We look, we look forward to a much more glorious eternal experience of the presence of God. But he's here now. One day, all those trusting in Jesus as Savior will stand in the presence and glory of God in a way it, that can actually be hard for us to imagine this morning, but, you, but which is nonetheless described in the last two chapters of the Bible. Turn with me there now, if you would. Revelation chapter 21. Follow along as I read about the experience of God with us in a way that, that we long for naturally, that can be hard for us to imagine, but one that is certain for those who are trusting in Jesus. In, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll, I should mention that interestingly, the Bible opens with humanity dwelling physically in the presence of God, this unencumbered presence. Moses said that Adam and Eve, it's chapter 3 of Genesis, so 
Genesis opens with the real presence of God made available to his people. If you know scripture well, you know that by the third chapter of the Bible, things go wrong. But Moses notes that Adam and Eve could hear, hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve, can you imagine that? That type of being with God, our creator, physically having the barriers of sin removed, the shame that is so common among humanity removed, the guilt removed, and dwelling with our creator as his creatures among his creation. That's how scripture opens. That's how history opens, all of history. That's how scripture closes. That's how history closes. Us dwelling with God, physically unencumbered presence of God with us. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 5 to get started in Revelation 21. There we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Sea is often a characterization of the chaos brought by sin in Scripture. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, said, I am making everything new. That's the process we're in now. Isn't that great? Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. These are certain words. We can count on these words. We'll pause there for a minute. Have you ever seen the movie titled The Truman Show? How many of us have seen The Truman Show? Great. If you haven't seen it, it's a great family movie. I'd highly recommend it. It's described as a psychological comedy. The main character is named Truman. He's played by Jim Carrey. In the movie, Jim Carrey is an insurance salesman, but selling insurance is not really what Truman's life is about. The same is true for us, by the way. What we do to pay the bills is not really what our lives are about. You see, Truman is unknowingly the star of his own reality television show, unknowingly. As Truman was born and raised and is living on camera as the movie opens, all the while completely unaware that the world is tuning in, the world is watching his every move, millions of viewers wanting to see what he's doing and saying and interacting with what is basically a set and that he believes is his life. Now, I say that Tr Truman's completely unaware, but the movie is about his growing suspicion that there is more to reality than what he can see and feel and touch. This is the psychological part of it. We all have a sense that there is more to reality 
than what we can perceive day to day. I won't spoil the movie, but as it unfolds, Truman grows in his suspicion that there's another world beyond his perception, and he's determined to find out what is real, what's out there. Of course, we all, like Truman, have inklings of another world, one that exists beyond our immediate perception. C.S. Lewis, a famous uh, Christian apologist, Oxford professor, wrote that our longings, particularly the desires that cannot be fully met in this world, give us an inkling, in fact, that we're made for another world. Here's the exact quote. And I read this quote at my father's funeral. The, the impetus was that I know that there's more. The longing to be with my father, the intimacy of missing him physically, tells me there's something more. My father was not a believer most of his life. The people in attendance, most of whom were not believers, happy atheists, right? Uh, highly credentialed, highly competent folks. Here's what Lewis said. If we find in ourselves a longing which no experience in this world can fully satisfy, lots of longings are partially satisfied in this world, but cannot fully satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Folks, Jim, Jim Carrey's character, Truman, like him, we all have an internal sense there's more to life. And as Lewis points out, our unmet desires in this world most likely are a part of the indication, in fact, that we're made for another experience. For example, a place without tears place without death, a place without mourning, crying, pain. Frankly, the very place that God started with, it was a garden experience. And as I turn our attention to heaven this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by describing what heaven is not. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the real presence of God among his people. I'd like to start by saying what it's not and then affirm what it is and how we can prepare best for it, even begin enjoying it, some of it, now. Heaven is not a place where we become little chubby cherubs floating around on puffy clouds while playing harps. The people giggling are most likely those who grew up in, in my generation, children of the 70s, who on Saturday morning uh, sat down in front of the TV and that's how cartoons depicted heaven. You know, as the cartoon characters died, they'd make their way to heaven, they'd float, they would, they would be transformed into these haloed angelic beings that float around in clouds and played hearts. My generation didn't know it, but that's platonic philosophy. That was Plato's idea of eternal reality. That is to say that heaven was described as a disembodied existence, more a, a reality of the mind than a physical experience. Folks, that's contra-biblical. Heaven's going to be more real than this is. It's going to be more concrete. It'll have more geography, more weight, more gravitas 
than this experience. I like uh, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's a thin book, like all books should be. But it's, a, it's about a bus ride from hell to heaven. It's a tourist ride. People get on in hell. It's fiction. People get on in hell, and they, they get to tour heaven. Ironically, folks don't want to stay. Maybe I'll come back to that. One person decides to stay. But when they get off the bus, so weighty is eternal reality, so concrete, so real, so vibrant, that the colors and the textures overwhelm them. The grass hurts their feet. Because they're vapors. They've not become who God fully meant them to be. And as they make their way closer to the presence of God, the overwhelming reality, the, the geography and the physicality of heaven is what marks them. This type of cartooning of heaven as people becoming tiny little chubby cherubs and playing the harps all the time did not draw me in as a child. I was a regular churchgoer. My mother would drag us to church. And I, I didn't like singing. And the notion that eternity, we'd spend it singing, I, I, that sounded more like hell, uh, punitive than heaven. I've since come to love singing. <laughs> and it's true, there's a lot of singing in heaven for sure. Earlier in the book of Revelation, it opens with the, the angelic chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's this, this choir's chant of the goodness of God going on all the time in heaven, eternally in heaven. But that's not all there is to heaven. By God's design, we never cease to be human, which means we will also always be embodied. You know, bodies were God's idea. Earth, physicality, was God's idea. There are a lot of philosophies that want to divorce what is real and spiritual and good from what is physical and described as bad. That's not what God does. God's redeeming all of creation, including our bodies, the world in which we live, for example, in this morning's chapter, there's a physical city, a new Jerusalem described. It's taking up space. It has a real geography. It's occupied by humanity. There are gates and doors and streets. The new capital city, the new Jerusalem, is described as a bride beautifully dressed. In other words, it's a place of tremendous beauty fit for serving as the home of the people of God where the creator is with the creatures in his creation. A little later in Revelation 21, verse 19, famous descriptions of heaven here offered, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, fourth emerald, fifth onyx, sixth ruby. The detail here, right? The seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and then amethyst, the twelve gates, twelve tribes of Israel, the people of God. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. These are big, big pearls. The great uh, street of the city 
was of gold, as pure as transparent glass, the famous streets of gold. The new heavens and the new earth is a physical, real place of tremendous beauty. It'll also be a place of intense physical activity, and not just of singing, mind you. There'll be activities in heaven to engage our highest faculties. For example, some of God's people will govern in the new creation. They'll, they'll judge, they'll rule. How do I know this? Well, in Luke's gospel, the reward for faithfulness is the governance of cities. It's on the screen, Luke 19, 17. Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. We shouldn't miss out here. The reward for faithfulness is more opportunity for faithfulness. In this story, the servant who hears his commendation had been entrusted with five bags of gold. When, he mas when his master returns, he's turned five into ten. He's acted faithfully with what was entrusted to him. The master responds by praising him, rewarding him. And not simply with money, but with management responsibility. The opportunity to exercise governing and authority. Now, I don't take, I don't think we should take this literally, necessarily. Perhaps governing cities sounds like hell to you. Like, so don't, don't concretize this too specifically. Don't get hung up on the particularity of bags of money or the governance of cities. Here's the point. Whatever our gifts and call are in this life, and everybody in this room has a gifting and a calling on their life, whatever we are entrusted to steward in this life, to the extent we are faithful, we'll have the opportunity in the new heavens and the new earth to continue to contribute and to even grow our contributions. No one will be bored in heaven. I actually think that's one of the uh, lies of the evil one, the enemy. The notion that heaven will be boring. In, in fact, I go so far as to say if you're living on mission, that is, if you're employing your gifts and your calling for God at this time, if you're mobilized and living for Christ, you're anything but bored. Boredom sets in in my life when I get off mission. Following Christ in this world and dwelling with Christ in the next world will be the most invigorating experience creatures could possibly have. Here's my best description of our eternal experience. Heaven is a place of tremendous physical beauty, significant physical activity, and perfect relational intimacy, where our senses are fully engaged, our gifts and abilities fully utilized, and our relationships enjoy perfect intimacy. I'm convinced, in fact, that the best parts of this world are reflections of what is ahead in eternity for those who are depending on Christ. The Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the beach, wherever your soul spot is, 
they cannot compare to the physical beauty that is ahead for God's people. When I think of productivity, I, I'm a guy, I'm more task-oriented than relationship-oriented. I love a highly productive day. The productivity, the day in which you are most creative, most industrious, most profitable, and I don't mean that financially, but you get it done, you crank it out, can't compare to your worst day in heaven. Imagine personal and community productivity unencumbered by self-interest. Imagine that team experience. We were made to be creative. Our Father is creative. We were made to be industrious. Our Father is industrious. Both of which are identified in the curse of Genesis 3. Right? You'll make your living by the sweat of your brow and you'll be frustrated in your productivity. Go back and read the curses of Genesis 3. There's actually a curse on the land. It's going to frustrate us. You're not going to be able to pay your bills as God would have liked it to have been. It would have come much more easily, except in this world, sin reigns, and it undermines the joy of the Lord in creativity and productivity and in relational intimacy. Try to imagine unencumbered relational intimacy, where every time we move towards somebody in relationship, there's no hint of self-interest. Hard to imagine, right? The consequences of sin in this world experienced on a daily basis create friction in our relationships with one another. And the mental health professionals of our community, it's hard to get in to see them these days. They have waiting lists, counselors, psychiatrists, because of COVID and, and financial strains and stresses. I can't imagine what the most difficult time in, annually will be like in the mental health world. The holiday season is a financial boon for mental health professionals because people are stressed over relationship. My family's coming to town. What will I do? Imagine perfect relational intimacy where everybody who comes towards you in relationship is coming towards you for your best in God's glory. And everybody you move towards, you're moving towards them in relationship. You're interacting with them for their best interest in God's glory. Hard to imagine. Paul went so far as to say our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Now, as compelling as it is to hear that all our senses and all our gifts and all our abilities, and all our connections will be fully met in the new heavens and the new earth. Make sure you don't miss this. Heaven is not primarily about beauty, productivity, or relationships with each other. Heaven is made heavenly. Heaven is made heavenly, completely beautiful. It's made fully engaging, 
because of God's presence. Let me say that again. What makes heaven heavenly is that our Creator is present fully. God's presence makes heaven heavenly, not my fulfillment. In other words, to sell heaven on it's going to be great for me and great for you falls short of the reason heaven's going to be great for me and great for you. The truth is, without God's presence, heaven would be hell. We have a tendency to get hung up on the appearance of heaven, streets of gold, gates made of single pearls. We get hung up on the activities of heaven. Am I going to be forced to sing? (laughs) Do I have to govern cities? I really don't like management and administration. The real blessing of heaven is the person of God with us. That's what we lost in the Garden of Eden. It was the presence of God as Adam and Eve, humanity, has ushered out of the garden because of sin. That's what God wants to restore to us, the entirety of the biblical narrative. The entirety, Genesis to Revelation, is about the restoration of presence. His presence with us. In fact, it's God's presence that makes earth bearable this morning. It's the taste of heaven, the presence of God, that keeps this from being utter hell. If he were to remove his presence, read Romans 1, he holds back judgment that you woke this morning, that you take breaths right now, is because of the presence of God. Everything you enjoy is because of the presence of God in this world. Everything. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That is the goal, the trajectory of redemptive history. None of us want to make the mistake of focusing on heaven's beauty, productivity, intimacy relationally with each other. We want to focus. In fact, the best preparation, here's here's the takeaway, the best preparation for heaven is to enjoy the presence of God increasingly on earth. The best preparation for hell is to enjoy all the blessings of God while excluding him from your life, right? That's idolatry. To to enjoy all the beauty and the productivity and relational intimacy without him. That's idolatry. That's that's hell. It's the the ever-increasing pleasure in this world with an ever decreasing um, fulfillment that's called addiction where we want more and more of something and we get less and less out of it that's guaranteed how you know 
you've made something an idol. The truth is that the entirety of Scripture is leading toward the reality of God's presence. All of history has been for this purpose. If you read redemptive history, you go from Genesis to Revelation, you read of the garden. They're ushered out because of sin. But God wanted to dwell. He wanted to walk in the cool of the day with his creatures and enjoy their presence, ushering us into his presence. That's forfeit. But God doesn't give up. He goes to one man, Abram. He says, I'll make a nation out of you, and through you I'll bless all the peoples of the world. And as he brings the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt, he gives them instructions for a tabernacle in the wilderness. This tabernacle is the place that was cleansed by sacrificial blood so that his presence could condescend. This is what God does throughout redemptive history. He condescends. That's the move of Christ in Advent. God condescends in the form of a little baby. The Holy Spirit, Pentecost, condescends. He comes down. At the tabernacle in the wilderness, God came down, his presence physically dwelling there as everything was cleansed by blood. Then when they established Jerusalem as the capital city, Solomon builds the temple and God's presence condescends again. God wanting to dwell with his people. Now we are the temple of God, New Testament times. We are the people that house the presence of God in the Holy Spirit. And Someday he'll bring us bodily, bodily into his presence. And it's interesting to note In fact, there's no temple in heaven. Why? John explains the absence of the temple in chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. I did not see a temple in the city, he says, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We don't need a physical structure. We have the presence of God brought to us. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Imagine being so close to the Creator that His presence is lighting all that needs to be seen. What's the takeaway? The best preparation for heaven is enjoying God's presence now. Are we enjoying the presence of God now? There are lots of folks interested in physical beauty. There are lots of folks that want to fully engage. They want to contribute at the highest level they can contribute. They want to be productive. A lot of folks interested in relational intimacy. But the reason heaven is heavenly is because of God's presence. If we make heaven about our experience of beauty, productivity, and intimacy, we're misunderstanding what makes heaven heavenly. Paul wrote these instructions in preparation for heaven. He said, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind and your heart on the presence of God. Begin now practicing what you'll experience for eternity. What occupies your thoughts during the day? What concerns engross you? What do you daydream about? It's in these things that we can tell whether or not we're making ourselves ready for heaven. Do the things beneath engross us or the things above? And when we get sucked in by the concerns of this world, 
What's our response? Because everybody has that. Is our response to dialogue with our creator about it? To bring him into that, to enjoy his presence in the stri- struggles, in the, in the strife of this world? Or are we going it alone? We don't have to wait until heaven to experience the presence of God. We can set our hearts and minds on him. We're all trying, long for, increased presence of our creator. That's what the the drive for, and it's an errant drive, the health and wealth and uh, fixation on sexuality. Those are errant desires, uh, longings that indicate we're made for another experience. We need to take those idols off the throne of our lives, put Christ at the center, fix our eyes, our hearts on Christ, and therein we begin to experience some of what our eternity will be like. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, I pray that in the days ahead we'll increasingly set our hearts and minds on your Son, on you. Thank you for the hope that we have to look forward to a place of physical beauty and productivity and relational intimacy like we've never experienced. But help us, Father, not forget that it's your presence that makes heaven heavenly. And apart from your presence, our experience is hell. I pray that the idols in our lives, those things that we'd be tempted to, to give our lives to and bow to that we'd not, but that we would humbly or because of humility, enjoy increasing amounts of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand as as is our habit and sing in response. Some of the pastoral staff are down front. If you want prayer this morning, whatever's on your heart and mind, come on down. They'd love to pray with you. Let's stand and sing together.